If you're really trying to drive peak performance, the thing that you have to realize is that play is the most powerful, then purpose, then potential. That's New York Times bestselling author and performance expert Neil Doshi talking about the importance of motivation. In this episode, he joins Dan Lappin to break down the six factors that determine your motivation and how you can leverage those to maximize your performance. Before we jump into the conversation, we've got a special invite for our Breaking Sales listeners. You're invited to our upcoming and exclusive webinar series that we're launching on March 24th. To find out more, visit lappin180.com slash 180prospecting, that's 180prospecting, or email us at breakingsales at lappin180.com and we'll make sure you get all the info you need. I'm Kylie Schmitz. I'm Dan Lappin, and this is Breaking Sales, a non-conformist take on rejecting the sales status quo. Join the Lapin 180 team as we break the tried and died sales tactics and techniques that are failing you and your prospects. Now here's Dan and Neil. Can you tell me a little bit about what made you write the book and what was that process like? Yeah, absolutely. The book itself, Prime to Perform, is about the science of human performance and particularly the science of human performance at scale. What got me down this path was a fairly long time ago, my first job about 30 years ago, coming out of undergrad, was as a software engineer at a big company. And I went into this big company pretty excited to be there. Like I wanted that job and I wanted to actually do the work that, that I was set out to do. Because I thought there'd be, this company would offer a great opportunity to have a fairly large impact and to learn a lot along the way. And what I could tell you is about three months into my work, I found that I really didn't like working there. And the funny thing is I couldn't explain to you why. The people that I worked with were really amazing people, like really kind, awesome, nice folks. It's been 30 years. They still check up on me, like that kind of really nice set of people. As engineers in this company, we were lavished. We had every perk you could possibly imagine. We had the ping pong tables and the really nice espresso machines. We didn't really get a lot of work. We weren't grinded to the ground like you see sometimes. Yet still, I really didn't like working there. And at the time, I thought maybe it was me. Maybe I'm just not cut out for work, which is a pretty sobering thought. Imagine you're in your early 20s, you're looking at 40 plus years of work ahead of you, and you're thinking to yourself, maybe you're just not cut out for this. And I was working in this organization and I left to start a company. Pretty much the next day, I'm working on this startup and I'm working seven days a week, 14 hours a day and loving every minute of it. Now, here's the thing. It was literally one day to the next, so I didn't change. There wasn't enough time for me as a person to change. So what I realized was it couldn't have been me. It was something else, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And so now in this startup, I'm building the technology organization of the startup and working on trying to make it a great place for these folks. I didn't want them to experience what I just had. And at the very best, all I could do is create something that was mediocre. And at that point, as an engineer, I concluded, all right, I had a blank sheet of paper, no one to blame but myself. And the best I could do was just mediocre. If you're an engineer and you're building a machine of any kind and it doesn't produce the kind of results or outputs that you expected it to, you're led to conclude that you didn't really understand the application of the science or even the science itself. So it was at that point that I decided I wanted to really understand what is the science of human performance. So if we were to engineer organizations, we can do not in a way that's just a bunch of random best practices, but based on actual first principles 
that are deeply at the root cause. The thing that the book helps explain is something that when you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. Motivation drives performance. And the more motivated you are, the better you'll perform. I can say that and people usually nod like that makes sense. Of course, that's got to be true. But the challenge, if that was so obviously easy, then why are so many people so demotivated all the time? Because it turns out that there's more to motivation than meets the eye. To really understand motivation, you have to start with a person's motive. A motive is a reason why someone does something. It turns out that there are fundamentally six human motives, or put differently, six reasons at the core of why people do things. You can apply these six reasons to any human action, any decision you've made, any action that you're taking, always is preceded by motives. The first motive is called play. Play is when you do something simply because you enjoy doing that thing. The work is its own reward. Imagine you have a hobby. Dan, do you have a hobby? Is there like an extracurricular, non-professional hobby that you have? Yeah, I do. I enjoy golf. Okay, golf. And you're not a professional. You're not making money on golf? <laughs> By no means. Do you have a nice set of golf clubs? Yeah. Okay, so here you are. You've invested in golf clubs. You invest a lot of time. You go to the driving range. You go to the course. You're playing all the time. This is actually very, a very time-consuming, expensive activity that's producing very little tangible, valuable output for you. Yet you do it. My guess is when we unpack why do you do it, it's probably for a bunch of things. You like the experimentation, the learning, the novelty. You like the kind of constant improvement. There's always you can get better in your swing. You probably like the time you spend on the course, outside, in the sun, walking a green. You probably enjoy having your friends along and the friendly competition and the fun that you have doing it. This is fundamentally the play motive. The thing that a lot of companies are getting wrong with the play motive is they think it means ping pong tables and foosball and kombucha. That's not what the play motive means. The play motive, when it comes to work and workplace performance, it has to come from the work itself. It looks like you enjoy the actual activity of what you're doing. The ping pong table, foosball table, that's a distraction from the work. That's not the work. So like for a sales leader, is it they enjoy the challenge of opening up new doors and creating new relationships? They enjoy the conversations, and maybe even the negotiations. Is that what you're meaning by play? That's exactly it. So we, we see this in salespeople all the time. It looks like I enjoy the process of getting to know a customer. I enjoy the process of trying to unpack what their needs are, where I can help them. I enjoy the process of working with them to come up with solutions. I enjoy the process of teaching them what I know. I enjoy the process of coming up with some kind of win-win set of arrangements. That could be fun. And you, you see so many aspects of those things in people's personal lives that they do for fun anyway. It's not about any outcome. It's actually about the thing itself, the activity itself, the work itself. And that's a very important thing about play that a lot of people don't quite understand. It's about the activity itself. That's the play motive. Let's go to the next one, which is very intriguing to me, which is the purpose. Yes. So play is you're doing something because you enjoy the activity itself, the work itself. Purpose is you're doing something because you believe in or value its immediate outcome. Not some eventual outcome, not some faraway outcome, some immediate outcome. The immediacy of it is actually what's really quite important. For example, purpose is not my company has a big, bold mission statement. That's another misconception that a lot of companies have. Purpose is easiest to understand if you understand its opposite. So for example, the opposite of play is boredom. Do you really want people to be bored of their jobs? The opposite of purpose is fungibility. So think about it this way. If a person feels fungible in their role, 
they can't really feel the purpose motive because their individual contribution, their work doesn't really matter. Imagine an outbound telesales type of situation. A lot of companies will set those up to make people fungible. We'll put them on a dialer. The machine is dialing the numbers. That gets a connect. You get a beep in your ear. You start to read your script. You hang up. And let's say this person didn't show up to work that day. No big deal. All of that stuff just gets automatically rerouted. Like you don't even really notice the absence of the person. That is true fungibility. And that is the exact opposite of the purpose motive. You're essentially saying that this person doesn't really matter. A good example of not fungible. You see this in, say, organizations where sales teams, salespeople have essentially a, a book of business that is really theirs. You see this in financial planning a lot, where a financial planner will have a book of business. That book of business are customers in their own community. They'll know those customers for 30, 40 years. They'll work with that book for 30, 40 years. They'll go to these people's weddings. They'll go to their major family events. Like they, they know them and they view themselves as an essential part of that community. There's a salesperson that will not feel fungible at all. That is a salesperson that will feel a very high level of purpose. The flip side of that is, let's say I've got a team that does lead qualification in my sales pipeline. And so I'm getting a bunch of leads. I'm just calling them, see if they qualify. If they do, I'm throwing it over the fence. These folks will feel very little purpose in their work. As a result, you'll expect to see very high attrition levels. Sometimes you see that with genuine sales folks where what they own is treated quite fungibly. So as a result, they don't really feel like they own anything. So when I think about purpose, and then I think about this term immediate gratification, I don't know how to feel about it and think about it because I know purpose is big. Purpose is I want to help people. I enjoy what I'm doing. There are people out there that need my help. I don't know who they are, but my role and responsibility is to go find them and then potentially work with them to help them achieve or overcome whatever needs to be overcome. And there's a purpose there. And then there's the immediate gratification piece though, which is, hey, they invited me in or they liked what I had to share or they, ooh, they liked that question I asked or they agreed to a second meeting. The immediate gratification piece seems very dangerous to me versus the purpose piece. And, and maybe I'm confusing them. To really unpack that question, I'd need to go through the rest of the motives. Because with immediate gratification, the question that I would ask you is, what motive are you gratifying? Because that actually makes a difference as you think about what immediate gratification is. I think the reason why your gut is telling you there's something not quite right with immediate gratification is because you have to double click on it to understand what is the motive that is actually being gratified. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what you're saying is if, if I'm feeling this urge, this subconscious urge to to validate myself, to be in front of the CEO and share with the CEO what we do and how we do it, my gratification might be that I'm trying to validate myself because I took the risk to ask for the appointment. I risked the rejection. The CEO said, yes, they would sit with me. And now that I'm in front of them, I want to make sure that they know I'm smart. They, I want to make sure that they know I'm knowledgeable. And so in that immediate gratification, that's a little bit self-serving on my part. And so that would, to me, be something that I would need to be careful of to make sure that particular motive is not finding its way into my dialogue with the CEO. Yeah, exactly. If I'm feeling insecure, and because I'm feeling insecure, what I'm seeking to do is solve for an insecurity by trying to show up well to my boss's boss, 
then you're actually solving for the fourth motive, which is emotional pressure. Not a good one. These are motives that actually destroy performance. What you're manifesting as immediate gratification is, I just worked with this customer and I gave them this great idea and they found it really useful. And now they're actually practicing it. I feel a great deal of personal fulfillment from that. Well, actually now you're talking about purpose. And so it's important to understand all these motives because these kinds of dynamics are subtle when you unpack them. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're getting into this because I know our listeners, they work hard for their meetings and they put themselves out there and then they put all this pressure on themselves to perform in these meetings. And sometimes that performance has that negative backdrop, as you said, the emotional backdrop. But my question would be is, can the emotional backdrop ever be positive? Let's define what emotional pressure is for a second to, to understand it, because the definition of it will really lead to the answer to that question. Because emotional pressure is the first of the motives that's not really connected to the work. So play and purpose, for example, are very connected to the work. Play is the work. Purpose is its immediate outcome. Emotional pressure is when something external to the work, external to you, acts on your identity to get you to do something. So for example, Dan, have you ever tried to get a loved one to do something using guilt? Oh no, never. Never, right? <laughs> guilt is an amazingly effective motive. We use guilt on people all the time, but what's happening there? So let's say, for example, I guilt my wife into taking care of our children during some period of time where I'd just rather do something else. Well, my wife might take care of our children during that period of time. She may or may not feel player purpose for that activity. What she's trying to solve for is this emotional pressure that I created. Uh, I essentially appeal to her identity to put on the guilt trip to get her to do something. It's essentially when an external force acts on your identity to get you to do something. Emotional pressure shows up in many ways. One way is guilt, for example. One way is shame. One way is peer pressure. So when you think about your concern about your children doing things that are harmful to themselves because of their peers at school. Well, what's going on? A child's peers are acting on that child's identity to compel them to do something. This is definitional emotional pressure. In the workplace, emotional pressure often looks like, I need to look good to my boss. I need to look good in front of my colleagues. I need to look good to my CEO. And emotional pressure is negative to adaptive performance. And one of the things we call out in our research, which is incredibly important, especially I think for sales folks to hear, is that there are two types of performance. One is tactical, the other is adaptive. Tactical performance would be a salesperson who is really effectively reading a script. These are the things I'm supposed to say, I'm just gonna say them to you and hope for the best. Adaptive performance is a salesperson that's really effectively diverging from the script. This is the salesperson that's actually listening to, who are you? Who are you specifically? What are your unique needs? And then how do I tailor this value proposition to feel like it fits you like a glove. That's adaptability. The thing is, I could use emotional pressure to create tactical performance, but it will destroy adaptive performance. That that salesperson who's under emotional pressure is more likely to stick to the script than adapt to it. When a salesperson is behind on their numbers, behind on their budget, and then they have that one-on-one with their boss, their sales leader, and that sales leader and all intents and purposes says, you need to get things going and build your pipeline and you need to get some things moving. That's an example of emotional pressure. It depends on how it comes across. So if that sales leader is essentially saying, hey, let me help you. Let me coach you. We're in this together. Let me help you set up that pipeline. Let me help you get your processes and rhythms in order. Let me help you on your motion. 
if it really feels not like judging, if it really feels not like blaming, if it feels like honest to goodness, coaching, helping, I'm here to support you in things that you want to do versus I'm trying to add pressure to the mix, then it's not going to manifest as much emotional pressure. But if it feels, hey, Dan, you're really failing right now, and that's going to be a real problem for you, you got to get your act together. Otherwise, you're going to have some real problems. If it feels like that, then that's absolutely going to create some emotional pressure. Sales professionals themselves, they're fully capable of putting emotional pressure on themselves. It's like when they walk into that meeting right before they go in, hey, I need to get this deal going. This would be a big win. I'm behind on my number. I hope they like what I have to say. I really hope they get us a, a second meeting or maybe at least a chance to, to give them a demo. Those examples of self-inflicted emotional pressure well, it's not really self-imposed if you feel like you need to do this, otherwise you'll get fired because it actually is the process of getting fired that's imposing it. Or I need to do this, otherwise I'm not going to make enough money to pay my rent. That's actually now economic pressure, the, the fifth motive. And so you have to be really careful to understand where is truly, where is the source of the pressure coming from? If it is coming from some reward or some punishment, if it is coming from, that's economic pressure. If it is coming from looking good to someone else, it is emotional pressure. If it's coming from a personal sense of values, a personal sense of belief, if it's coming from truly inside that person and not from anything outside that person, then you're actually closer to purpose or the, the third motive potential. But here's an area where I see a lot of people get this wrong. They want to believe as an executive or a sales manager, they want to believe that the pressure was self-imposed. But when you really double click on it, when you really unpack it, some of it might have been, but a lot of it wasn't. A lot of it was imposed by the systems and structures and processes of the organization. So go to potential, because I, I know that was your third. Can you talk a little bit with the listeners about what that potential motive comes from? What does it sound maybe like to us internally? So if purpose was you doing an activity because you value its immediate outcome, Potential is you're doing an activity because you value its eventual outcome. So the outcome that you care about is a little bit further away from the work itself. So for example, you might be saying to yourself, if I sell this product in the long term, it'll be very good for this customer. Or if I sell this product in the long term, it'll be very good for this mission. Or in the process of my work, I'm actually learning skills that are important to me or developing myself in ways that are important. All of that is not about the actual direct outcome of the work. It's some eventual outcome of the work, and that's the potential motive. If you're really trying to drive peak performance, the thing that you have to realize is that play is the most powerful, then purpose, then potential. Think about it this way. Nothing compels you to play golf but play, and you spend a lot of time, money, and effort on it. If I'm really trying to build an ultra-high-performing sales force, what I'm saying to myself is, I want to maximize play, I want to maximize purpose. Potential would be great, but it's just way weaker than the other two. So it's not my priority. I'm going to try to minimize emotional pressure. I'm going to try to minimize economic pressure. And I'm going to try to minimize the sixth mode of inertia. Inertia. Can you share a little bit more about that? Inertia is the last of the six motives. It's when you ask somebody, why are you doing what you're doing? And they say, I have no idea. I'm just doing it because I'm doing it. I'm going through the motions. I've lost the reason. And you'd be surprised how often it exists in the workplace. If you find that there's a lot of inertia in your workplace, I'd encourage you to go after that first. It is incredibly damaging. Will be a, a way that someone could start to tease out inertia in their organization. We led a transformation at a financial institution in their branches, deep motivation transformation. 
where we put into place weekly experimentation, focus on the play, deep purpose. We focus on all those levers. But for inertia, what we essentially said to the front line is if there's any part of your work, it could be any process, any product, any experience, any policy. If you don't see how that policy, process, product, procedure, if you don't see how it directly drives customer impact, then say something. Because either we should stop doing it or we're just not explaining it well enough for you guys to be high performers. When I look back on my career, I bet you my first 10 years, I was motivated by economics, emotion, and inertia. And I, I feel like I had very little motive around play, purpose, and potential. And it wasn't until probably, I think, in my early 30s, mid-30s, that I started to understand, wait a minute, I want to do something I love. I want to do something that gets me up every morning and I'm, I'm excited to get up. And I feel like it's like a journey for me. Is that a uniqueness to me? Or is that, do you see that statistically in your research? Or can you share a little bit about that? One, it's important to separate a few things from each other. What our research points out is that play purpose potential, maximize performance, emotional pressure, economic pressure, inertia, reduce performance. So what we're, what we're really describing is the impact and motive on performance. Now, what you're saying is two things that I think are important, but slightly different. One is what might be something that you're trying to drive for yourself. So essentially a preference. The other is what was your reality? Unfortunately, as we've measured motivation in thousands of workplaces, hundreds of thousands of people, very few workplaces really offer real play purpose potential. Most are actually built on emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia. This is fundamentally why you see adult stress levels in the US are so high right now. Unfortunately, the story of you feeling like 10 years of your career didn't have that much play purpose potential and had a lot of pressure and inertia. I would like to say that's uncommon. Unfortunately, it's very common. The the other thing you said, though, is later on in my career, I started to realize that's not what I want. Like, I want to actually get out of bed wanting to go to work and enjoying it and having fun and realizing that my work matters. People do start to form these realizations as they get more mature. Like, they start to realize what really matters to them later in their life. But the problem with that is, wouldn't it have been so much better if we got it right at the beginning? When I say at the beginning, wouldn't it have been greater if we got it right back when children getting educated? Like, think about children in school today, high school. There's so much pressure on them right now. You got to get the good grades. You got to get the right scores. You got to be in the right extracurriculars. Otherwise, you're not going to get to college. That you're starting to see the joy of learning get consumed by the pressure. That play is getting consumed by the pressure. And as a result, you're actually seeing children learning less. And one of the things that we share in the book is how, while average IQ scores have been steadily increasing, average creativity scores have been steadily decreasing for 30 years. Yeah, I thought that was interesting how you guys, through your research, were able to show that the higher the creativity score, the more likely the person is to be an entrepreneur, to have purpose in what they do, to do well in life, things like that. Absolutely. It's, it's so important. Think about it this way. The world of work is going through a fundamental change right now. We just talked about tactical and adaptive performance. Tactical is we have a process, we have a plan, we have a script, we stick to it. Adaptive is we don't stick to it because there's a problem to solve or a better way of doing things, something new. The tactical part of people's work is quickly getting automated, like fa really fast. And so all that's left is the adaptive side of people's work, the problem solving, the novelty, the experimentation. 
that's the part that requires people to be motivated the right way. And so we're quickly evolving into a future of work that's essentially all adaptive. This doesn't have to be a bad thing. This could mean that more and more jobs will actually be fun, but only if people are ready to be adaptive in the workplace and only if workplaces are motivating people the right way. Do you run into individuals and cultures? I know it's a wide span, right, between individual and a culture, but do you run into them where they almost given up on play where they just think, hey, I'm a provider. I'm wired as a provider. If I look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I'm always trying to make sure the safety of my needs and my family's needs are taken care of. So no matter what it is, at the end of the day, I'm economically driven. Do you run into that kind of stuff? Yeah, we run into that occasionally. All right, but not very often, it sounds like. We run into that occasionally, not very often. What we run into more often are misconceptions. So uh, an example of a misconception, we were leading a very long transformation at one of the world's largest and most successful hedge funds. And you'd say a hedge fund, that must be very economically driven. These folks are making million-dollar bets on stocks. Surely that must be all about economic pressure. We actually really deeply analyzed this. We measured motives. We actually went deep underneath the surface. And what we found was that when a portfolio manager of a hedge fund felt play, so they felt like it was a puzzle. They felt like their work was like a mystery, trying to find the insight, trying to find some unique understanding and they looked at that like they were doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. Those portfolio managers dramatically outperformed the ones that were under a great deal of pressure. The ones that felt like they were scared, they were playing scared. They were afraid of losing their bonuses. They were afraid of losing their livelihoods. In fact, we can even take our research down to a very narrow level. So if a portfolio manager makes a bet on a stock and it goes the wrong way, their pressure spikes momentarily. If they make another bet at the same time, the odds that bet will go the wrong way are even higher. At that point, if they do two bad ones in a row, you should not let them trade again. Not for a while. Because the pressure is so high, the odds of them making another bad mistake are very high. But this is essentially how motives show up in real life. And so what you would often hear these portfolio managers say, they'd say to you, it's all about the money. But then when you really unpack it, they'd say the money is actually the scoreboard of the game I'm playing. And the game is actually a lot of fun. But most people just don't know how to unpack their own motives. So they, they recite narratives that are very imprecise. In fact, even the head of this hedge fund, one of the world's wealthiest people, he said, no, come on, people aren't driven by play. And I asked him, you're one of the most successful hedge fund managers, portfolio managers of all time. You still trade. You don't have to. Why do you do it? And he said, it was fun. And I'm like, there it is. That's it. Why would that be different for anyone else? And that was just an analysis that he had just never done. That's interesting. Now, do these motives shift? I mean, can someone be heavy on purpose and potential at one point in their career and then all of a sudden be more heavy on play? Or do you find it, it consistently stays a bit linear? It's actually the first. Like It shifts rapidly based on the context you're in. When we're sharing this research with a group of executives who've been at work for a long time, I'll ask them a simple question. Like who here has ever been in two different teams in the same company and felt two different levels of motivation? And everyone raised their hands. This is a very common phenomenon, or even just during the course of a week, during the course of a day, like who's felt their motivation ever flow? And when you think about it, you're like all the time. Now that's, that's an important thing to realize because a lot of misconceptions are that people's motivation is essentially a function of the person. But if that were true, there would be no ebbing and flowing. 
it would be a straight line. The reality is actually motivation is much more a function of the context that person's in. So for example, you're watching a TV show, it's boring. You flip the channel, you're watching another show, it's fun. You're playing a game, you're not liking it, it's boring. You play a different game, you like it, it's fun. The structures, the processes, the ways we interact in an organization, the ways we drive our teams, the sales motion itself, how we compensate, all of this stuff has a profound effect on people's motivation. And it has to be engineered the right way to create the right types of motivation. So for those sales leaders out there right now, that motivation is heavy on the financial side for their teams. Any advice that you might give them to try to tap in a, a more consistent and, and deeper motivation like play purpose and potential? Yeah, absolutely. In one big tech organization right now, we're actually helping them lead a program that, that they're calling the joy of sales. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to essentially teach all their sales folks, how do you actually create an experience for yourself? And how do we as sales leaders create an experience that is high in play, purpose, and potential, and actually lower in the pressures? Thing number one is we're helping them find the mystery of each account. It's like a little puzzle to unpack. And if you really understand how to look at it that way, you can actually find a great deal of play in unpacking that puzzle. But we have to often help people understand that it is a puzzle. Think about it this way. Have you ever played a, a game that was really difficult to play and the people that were around you were actually very good at it? And so for you, it wasn't really fun. It was actually overwhelming and maybe even a bit boring, even though for other people it was fun. This is pretty common. And with a lot of sales folks, no one's ever sat down and really helped them understand, how do I see the puzzle of my work? How do I see the game? So... On that note, let's go to this bias thing because I read the chapter on the biases and what I thought was interesting, and I'll give you the example is you used a Monopoly example where two people will be playing Monopoly and one person would pass go and receive double the money. And that same person would also be able to roll both dice. So one person gets double the money and one person gets to use both dice. And so by nature, that person won quite a bit of the time, in fact, destroyed the other player. And then I guess at the interview, at the end, they would ask that individual who got the advantage, why did they win? And that individual always went back to what their strategy was, what they did different, what they felt that they contributed to the win. And they didn't talk about the fact that they got to receive double the money and roll both dice. Yeah, essentially, they, they, they would say that I won because I'm just that much better versus the fact that the game was entirely rigged in their favor. I think that's what happens in sales, Neil. I, I think people go into these meetings and they sit down with a CEO or an executive and that, that executive, that decision maker has potentially already decided to make a change before that salesperson ever shows up. And so then the meeting goes really well, salesperson's feeling great, and maybe the salesperson wins they take the credit of what they did, but they never stood back and said, okay, where was my prospect in their decision process before I even entered the picture? Did you see that analogy I'm making there? I exactly see that analogy. If I were to kind of expand that a bit, essentially, it's all because of you. When things go poorly, it has nothing to do with you. And so how do we as sales professionals get better 
at avoiding that type of bias? It's a great question. There's a couple of things that that you can do. One is you hear a lot about sales teams doing account planning. Like we'll plan out what we're going to do with these clients as we're going to these sessions. And generally what we've seen, I'd be curious if you see the same thing, is a lot of account planning is just way too tactical. It's scripted. So for example, we're working with a sales executive maybe about a year and a half ago where he led a, a fairly large B2B sales team. And B2B sales team, they had to come up with custom pitch decks. That was a big part of their motion. And I asked him, hey, why don't you ask your sales folks to send you their last three pitch decks? Don't, no cherry picking, like literally the last three. Why don't you just read them all over the holidays and come back and let us know how much unique thought did you see in them? And so he does that. He gets them, he proves them all over the holidays, comes back to Neil. They were all just off the shelf scripts like very little unique ideation, very little unique thinking, very little unpacking the puzzle. That's the problem because then you're not going into the sales interaction with a hypothesis. You're not going into the interaction saying, I think this is going to be a layup because I think they've already made a decision or I think they've already self-identified the problem and the solution. And so I think this is just going to be X, Y, Z versus I think this is going to be tricky because I don't think they understand their own problem. I think we might need to take a step back and really help them unpack that problem. When you're doing fake account planning, essentially regurgitating the script, you don't go into the interaction with enough of a hypothesis to then after the interaction see, did the interaction meet or not meet the hypothesis I had going in? Put differently, you can't self-evaluate accurately without bias if you had no hypothesis going in. So how might that look and sound for our listeners? Before you actually start having that interaction with that CEO, for example, you'd say to yourself, let's really unpack what we think the scenario is here. What's our hypothesis for that meeting? Is the CEO going to be someone that already has the problem solved? What is their problem? How would they identify it? Let's see if we can do a little bit of work to predict that upfront. Let's talk about it as a team. So we're not just a bunch of individuals who are working alone, but as a team, let's talk about my hypothesis going into this interaction. And then after the interaction, all right. Did it match what you thought going in or did it go differently? But you need to have that upfront thinking. Otherwise, everything is just going to get subject to your bias. Yeah. I, I like any exercise that can help our listeners do their best to go in to any conversation with a prospect or a client as objective and as neutral as possible. I know that this is playing out right now. Everybody's had to adapt and continue to adapt to the new sales environment, all right? I'm not going to say it's good or bad. I think there's good that comes out of it. Are you speaking particularly of remote-based work and selling? Yeah, virtual. What I've noticed is that a lot of sales professionals are a bit in a rut. And it may not be a rut in every facet of their business, but it could be a rut in generic general outreach. It could be a rut in trying to grow their centers of influences so they can grow their referrals. It might be a rut in how they handle their conversations with their prospects and clients, or literally it could be a rut on results. And it's probably demotivating. So any thoughts from you that might help our listeners become maybe a little bit more self-aware of the rut that they could be in, that they're feeling, but haven't been able to put their finger on it and maybe how to try to pull themselves out of it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we've seen largely happen through this pandemic is organizations doubled down on tactical performance, even though what they needed to double down on was adaptive. 
And so what that looked like is for sellers, for example, rather than weekly huddles, weekly pipeline reviews, we're going to do daily huddles and daily pipeline reviews. We're, we're going to double down on the existing sales motion. We're just going to make you stick to it even more aggressively. Because the view was, if you're remote and we can't really manage you very much, we're just going to make sure that you're absolutely doing your tactical motion. The problem is if you double down tactical, you destroy adaptive. If you have too much convergence, you destroy divergence. What we should be focused now on is fast experimentation, more adapting. Because the faster you experiment, the faster you learn. The faster you learn, the faster you grow. So if I'm a sales leader right now, or if I'm just in charge of myself as an individual contributor, what would you do or what would you suggest that they would do on a weekly basis to promote experimentation? One, I would take ownership over my own craft of selling. Like I would really start to say, this isn't just a job, this is a craft. And that craft has implicit within it, there's a lot of skills. This is a craft like any other. Imagine you're a master woodworker. There are hundreds of skills in that craft that you could spend a career, a lifetime learning. The, there's a real deep craft of sales that's actually fun to learn. Like the things that you can learn and practice and try are really interesting. I think two is once you've said to yourself, you know what, I am going to own my own craft of selling. I am going to start to think through what are the specific skills in that craft that I would need to learn. The second thing I would say is carve out time every week for intentional experimentation against those skills. For example, just try something different, try something new. There's a very interesting technique that is often unheard of. Like people don't actually never heard of this, but it's called the learning goal. So imagine I have three sellers and they're all selling against each other. So they're actually going after the same market, same targets. And the goal is market share. Let's say I give that first seller no real goal. I just say, do your best. That's group A. Group B, I give a market share goal. Your current share is 6%. You need to grow that to 15%. That's your goal. Let's say the third group of sellers, I give a learning goal. What that learning goal is, in the next two weeks, try four different ways of introducing our product. Now, if you pay attention to the way I even phrase the learning goal, it wasn't find four different ways that work. In fact, whether or not any of them worked was an irrelevant part of the goal itself. It was just try to find four different ways of selling a product and then teach us what you've learned. The, the interesting thing about learning goals is they tend to grow performance faster and more sustainably than the other two types. They do your best or the actual performance goal. Because what learning goals trigger is they get you to try new things. They get you to skill up. And they get you to do that in a way that doesn't feel forced. It feels like play and purpose. In your book and what you're describing here, which is make it about learning, make it about experimentation, take action, vary that action and move away from the whole stuck in the, well, I need to do 200 of these and 400 of these. And if that doesn't work, I need to double it to 600 of these because that's very tactical. Yeah, absolutely. It's very tactical. And if you're finding that the world is evolving so that your strategy is not really effective anymore, then one option is you just try more, you raise the volume. The other option is you change the game. And you have to realize that at some point you're going to have to change the game. Now, the problem is most organizations, they don't do that. They choose the path that you described. Okay, I did 400 calls, I have to do 600. Now I have to do 800, now I have to do 1,600. And all of that essentially is digging a hole where by the time you realize you really did need to change the game, you can't just change the game overnight. You needed to be experimenting all the way through to get there. So from a sales leadership standpoint, if you had a room of, say, 50 of them right now in front of you, and you could share two or three things 
that are a little bit on the, say, tactical side, but they're fairly simple to implement. What, what would you suggest to them right now? The challenge is I don't find often good silver bullets. Number one, if you're finding in however you talk through pipeline every week, if you're finding that is really just I'm reading out numbers and I'm adding pressure, very practically, the thing you should do is one, that's not super valuable. Instead, use the metrics to create opportunities for experimentation and manage those opportunities. What that really means is your weekly pipeline review looks different. It really does look like, all right, let's see where we're strong, let's see where we're weak, and now what are the experiments that we're going to try next week? Essentially build an accountability loop around experimentation. So in, in, in that instance, you could say, okay, I want you guys to try three different ways how you're going to start your conversations. Don't start on the same way. I want you guys to think about the questions that you're asking and maybe the different ways you can ask them or maybe mixing up the questions. I want you to think about when and how you share your expertise. So you're asking your sales team to, to produce or to uh, execute with some variability. That's exactly right. And create accountability around it. Next week, we're going to start the pipeline with you're going to all teach us the things that you learned. And no pressure on these ideas work. That's not the goal here. But what we do ask is you teach us what you learn from it. So you could say, I tried to open up my conversations with these three questions and it really fell flat. And so my learning was maybe this wasn't the right way to kick things off. That's fine. It's fine if it didn't work. The other thing is that learning goal itself, as a team, you could decide which parts of your motion or funnel are just the weakest and focus experimentation on specific places. That's fair game. Like this doesn't have to be a, a net that's cast wide open. Imagine if you said our biggest issues are in mid funnel, not early, not late, mid funnel. All right, great. Let's start a sequence of rapid experimentation to figure out what do we want to do differently in mid funnel and tight weekly cycles, tight accountability against those experiments. You essentially want to signal that this is the way we're going to drive growth, not pressure. That drives individual growth, as you've already mentioned, but it also starts to build a culture of growth mindset and or growth-minded people. 100%. Because you start to realize, where does real growth come from? Real growth doesn't ever come from pressure. Real sustainable growth comes from some form of novelty. It comes from a colleague learning a new skill. It comes from a new process or new motion. It comes from a new strategy, a new segment, a new product, a new value proposition. What people don't quite realize is growth comes from one and only one place, novelty and learning. Growth and learning are the same exact thing. As a result, all we're suggesting here is make your sales motion actually about growth. But to make it about growth, you have to make it about learning. As we wrap up here, Neil, if I'm a sales professional or sales leader listening right now, is there a little analysis that I could do on myself to get a little bit more clarity on my play purpose and potential versus my economic emotion and inertia? Yeah, absolutely. I think that if at this point, you as a sales leader, as an individual contributor, you're saying to yourself, all right, it makes sense. I understand how you're thinking about motivation connecting to performance. I do want to master it. I want to be distinctive at it. There's a lot of resources that can help you. The first thing I suggest is pick up our book, Prime to Perform. You can get it on Amazon, Audible, any normal book place. And what you'll find is it'll give you a very comprehensive playbook around how motivation and performance connect and what you need to do about it as either an individual or as a leader. Thing number two is... If you go to either primetoperform.com or our company's name, vegafactor.com, V-E-G-A-F-A-C-T-O-R.com, on that website, you'll see a link for surveys. 
On the surveys page, there's a number of surveys that we have to help you self-diagnose your team or your own motivation. The, the team diagnostic is really at the cutting edge of the space. It's a simple tool to help you and your team take ownership over its own motivation. Essentially, it's a way to make sure that as your team is doing its work, it is motivated to do it. What I recommend on that team survey is take it about every six weeks, go, take a pulse check. Is my team looking at their next six weeks with the right type of motivation or the wrong type? That way, as a leader, you can jump right in before it gets too late and actually do what you need to do to, to re-inspire your team. That's the second big thing I encourage you to do. Last thing is you can reach out to us on, our, on that website, vegafactor.com. You can find our ways to connect with us. There's, a, there's ways to send us questions. You can connect with me on LinkedIn if you want, Neil Doshi. And I'm more than happy to field questions and give you guys more ideas and tips on how to bring this back to your, your teams and organizations. Thanks for listening to Breaking Sales. If you want to get engaged with us outside of this podcast, be sure to go to our website, lapin180.com. That's lappin com, And there you'll find information on upcoming workshops, different events we're doing throughout the United States, ways to engage with us on social media, as well as a form where you can suggest topics or guests for the podcast. We want to hear from you, so don't be shy. Kylie out. All right. Do we have another episode?